Greetings everyone, this is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Chointcast, interviews and short stories from across the world that connect us with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. Has watching professional poker ever fascinated you? In episode 14, we meet Annie Duke, author of Thinking in Bets, who has leveraged her expertise in the science of smart decision-making to excel at pursuits as varied as championship poker to public speaking. For two decades, Annie was one of the top poker players in the world. In 2004, she bested a field of 234 players to win her first World Series of Poker bracelet. The same year, she triumphed in the $2 million winner-take-all, invitation-only WSOP Tournament of Champions. In 2010, she won the prestigious NBC National Heads Up Poker Championship. Prior to becoming a professional poker player, Annie was awarded the National Science Foundation Fellowship. Because of this fellowship, she studied cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Annie is also the co-founder of How I Decide, an educational nonprofit that works with urban, disadvantaged communities in the Philadelphia area. Welcome to Annie Duke. Annie, I have to I have to admit to the audience this is a, a, a bit of a, a, a thrill for me as I've watched poker on television for a long time. So I've, I've seen you and some of the others play, and I've found it fantastic that your book spoke so much to leadership. Welcome, welcome, Annie Duke. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Super. Well, before we start uh, talking about your book, Thinking in Bets, which is subtitled Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts, I noticed that you've co-founded something called How I Decide. Can you tell us about that? I, I, um, I'm really interested in how do we uh, really teach decision-making and critical thinking skills. So when you look at kind of what's happened in education, um, there's a lot of focus on STEM, you know, your three R's, whatever you want to say, and not, not a lot of focus on kind of how do we think about uh, the way that we think? How do we think about the way that we process information? Um, just an example would be one of the ways that, uh, one of the tools that we need in order to think properly about um, information out in the world and, and thinking about what the future might hold and uh, how do we make decisions um, it, you really need to be uh, have a grasp of probability um, and probabilistic thinking. And actually, when you look since, say, 1980 at how much uh, probability is being taught uh, in K through 8, it's gotten less and less and less and less and less and less. And less. Uh, so there's a lot less focus on that kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of education is really fact-based. And uh, this is now a world where, obviously, I can just pull out Google uh, and I can look up any fact. Um, so maybe memorizing facts isn't so important, um, and learning how to think about those facts uh, in an unbiased way is really important. So I'm I'm really committed to that mission and trying to figure out how to do that. So um, to that end, founded How I Decide um, along with uh, uh, my my partner uh, Eric Brooks. Actually, let me do that again. Uh, let me just leave his name out of it, so because um, people can look that up on the website. So. Anyway, um, so anyway, to that to that end, uh, co-founded how I decide a few years back, and our mission is to teach critical thinking and decision skills uh, with a focus on underserved youth, um, as well as really working to catalyze 
catalyze the field, to catalyze interest around developing these kinds of skills. So as you know, uh, this is something that a lot of businesses have really taken up uh, in, in terms of uh, what are they trying to do uh, in order to improve performance. And they're starting to focus on, um, you know, how do we de-bias? How do we become better decision makers? How do we get involved in better strategic planning? Uh, actually, even um, so much as bringing mindfulness into the workplace, which really helps people to stay in a calmer state so that they're better decision makers. Uh, thinking about um, how to foster good habits. These are all things that are starting to get really integrated into the corporate world, particularly as the rise of behavioral economics has come along. Um, people are really understanding that this is something really important um, to incorporate into the corporate environment, but it, it's not something that's so much been incorporated in education yet. So, you know, not only are we trying to create programs in order to bring that into the educational space, but we're also trying to uh, energize people around this mission. I'd go even further with regard to the depth of decision-making you discuss in your book, Thinking in Bets, Annie. As a leadership facilitator, we find that just getting people to understand uh, fundamental differences in decision-making between, say, time-based and developmental-based is, is a watershed mm -hmm. for many people. And when I, when I wrote my review of your book, Thinking in Bets, I just thought there's some fantastic language here that probably exists in the poker community, but could translate so well into both business life and everyday life. But uh, before we do that, how do, how do people find you? Uh, well, you can find my nonprofit at howidecide.org. Uh, so hopefully people will go and explore that. In terms of me personally, um, you can certainly find me on Twitter, uh, at Annie Duke. Um, I try to use Twitter uh, very mindfully. <laughs> so um, uh, people can... Uh, you know, see what I'm thinking on there and interact with me on, on Twitter for sure. Um, you can also go over to AnnieDuke.com. Uh, and on AnnieDuke.com, you can contact me either just to uh, send me your thoughts or if you want to hire me. Uh, there's lots of um, video on there of me discussing these issues. I have uh, a blog which um, also archives all of my newsletters. People can subscribe to my newsletter as well, which um, gets sent out every single Friday. Uh, and in my newsletter, I'm really taking uh, things that are kind of um, new in the world, whether it's new scientific research or things that are happening, like, say, the NFL draft or, uh, for example, uh, things in politics, like, say, what's going on with Korea right now, and really trying to um, apply, uh, you know, these kinds of decision-making principles to thinking about things that are actually happening in the world. So um, you can look at the archives if you like my newsletter. Please subscribe. Um, you'll get it every Friday. So that's really the main ways that you can get in touch with me. Wonderful. Now, I, I don't want to dwell a lot on, on, on the poker side. Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll meet one of these days and, and you'll be able to share me some stories. But, but for our sure. audience, can you, can you tell us, Annie, something about tournament poker you learned all those years that our audience just is very unlikely to know? Sure, it's really boring. That's, that's, what I would, <laughs> that's what I would tell people that they don't really know. I mean, it's boring in the sense of, obviously, there's always something to watch and something to learn. Uh, and so, it's a, it, you know, it's, it, from a learning perspective, you're learning a lot. But it, it's a lot of hours at the table. So, um, by boring, what I mean is that what they tend to show on television when people are watching poker tournaments on TV are the really big moments. 
where there's lots and lots and lots of money at stake and, you know, somebody has a huge decision um, and maybe, you know, if things don't go their way, they lose all of their chips and they're out of the tournament. And what um, uh, generally the television, you know, isn't on TV is the 30 hands that occur in between where nothing particularly spectacular happens. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, Uh, I actually think that those are the more interesting uh, the decision making around those kind of what look more like the non events mm-hmm. are are more interesting, but I think that for a television viewing audience, it would be a, a little bit boring. So I guess the main lesson is what sometimes seems boring is actually where the meat of the decision making problem is. That's a nice way to put it. Well, your first great poker team and it term and it's it is a great poker term is resulting. Can you define that for us? Sure. So uh, resulting is when we too tightly link the quality of an outcome to the quality of the decision that led to uh, that outcome or preceded the outcome. So it's essentially saying uh, if we look at the the quality of the outcome, if we look at outcome quality, uh, we can derive decision quality from that. So it's looking at the result and saying the result was good or bad. And then using that to determine whether the decision was good or bad, essentially as, as the sole signal. Um, and it's actually a really uh, strong bias. And it actually really, really, really leads us astray in our decision making because it's not the case that the quality of the result tells us everything we need to know about the quality of the decision. We can have um, very, very bad results from very good decisions. We can have very good results from very bad decisions. And we can have good results from good decisions and bad results from bad decisions. We can fill out the whole, you know, two by two matrix. And um, so the issue is that there, there's a lot of noise uh, in the relationship between decision quality and outcome quality. It's actually a loose relationship. And when we start to uh, tether those two tightly together, we get into a lot of trouble. When I first read that, the, the first thing that I could think about in business is the tendency when there's a good outcome to immediately believe the decision-making process was good. And I I started to wonder, how many times do we actually analyze our decision-making process after a favorable outcome? And I think what most people do is head to to happy hour and just celebrate, whereas whereas we'll tend to to analyze the bad outcome with something like an after-action review. Yeah, I I think that that's true. And and you know, where I think a lot of that comes from is that we kind of don't want to rain on our parade. When we have a, when we have a good result, we want to bask in the glory of that good outcome. So when we close the sale, we're not calling up and saying, hey, can we really walk through why I was able to close that sale with you? Um, what are the things that I could have done differently? What are the things that I could have done uh, better? It's just not really our tendency when we have a win, uh, really go in and examine it too much. I think that we just sort of pat ourselves on the back and move on. And of course, the problem with that is that then we may be reinforcing decision-making behavior that uh, we shouldn't be. And even if the decision-making was pretty good and actually had something to do with the fact that you had a good outcome, it doesn't mean that the decision making couldn't have been better. It's not black or white. It's not like there's a great decision and a horrible decision and there's literally nothing in between. You could have made a good decision that had you actually cleaned some things up would have been even better. 
and had a higher probability of a good outcome, or maybe even uh, the outcome that you had was not actually the best outcome that could have occurred, even though it was a good outcome. So, I, you know, I think we miss all of the that kind of nuance when we're just, you know, at the bar and drinks are on me. The black-white's a really good analogy. I have a confession. When I facilitated a leadership course just a couple of weeks ago, and intentionally, I did not look at at the online feedback for the course. I had uh, an hour, hour and a half drive to uh, to home in the mountains in Colorado, and I forced myself to ask myself how I could have done better in the course before I looked at any of the of the scores. And as a result, when I did actually look at the scores, they were actually very, very high, and I probably or likely would not have been as critical when I asked myself those questions before. So I'm already taking advantage of what you've taught me about resulting. So thank you. Well, you know, I, I love that. And I think I think what's really interesting is that when there's very strong consensus around a decision, it's very easy to see that resulting doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Because because we already we we already have decided like sort of as a society or as a group, we've decided whether a decision is good or bad. And so we're willing to acknowledge that the outcome uh, is not necessarily a result of the of the quality of the decision itself. So uh, the example that I would give that there's lots and lots of consensus around is that as a society, we've agreed on traffic laws. So we've agreed about whether it's a good decision to go through a red light or, uh, you know, a bad decision to go through a red light. We've all agreed it's a bad decision. Now, I've run red lights in my life. I assume you have as well. Um, and I happen to have never even gotten a ticket for for doing that. So, but because this, it's so clear here that that's clearly a bad decision, um, we allow for the influence of luck in the way that that outcome occurred, you know, and nobody's saying, wow, you should really pat yourself on the back for getting through that light safely. Everybody's saying, wow, you were really lucky that you happened to make it through that light. Uh, but when the, when the process gets more opaque, um, you know, because we can't really we can't really see into the decision process. We're making estimates of the probabilities. Uh, uh, you know, there's lots of luck involved in the way that things might turn out. That's one source of uncertainty. Uh, and we're trying to take a stab at sort of what the influence of luck might be. And then the other source of uncertainty is that there's usually information asymmetry. Uh, we only have some of the information that we need uh, in order to make a perfect decision. Um, and there's lots and lots of information that's hidden from view that's unknowable or that we just don't have access to um, that also kind of gets in the way. But we can't really see into all of that, right? We don't necessarily know, like, what's the information that we have or don't have. I mean, by definition, we don't have it. We might not know what's available. Most things aren't like a coin flip where we can run it 10,000 times and know exactly what the influence of luck in the outcome is. So it's, it's much more hidden from view. It's much more opaque. And when it's opaque and there's not a whole lot of consensus around the quality of the decision, what happens is that once we have the outcome, we just kind of rely on the outcome. We rely on the result in order to tell us whether the decision was good or bad. And it's so, it's so strong, to your point, that once we know the result, our ability to go back in and look at that decision with any kind of clear eye kind of goes out the window. So we can it go really back does. to something that, yeah. So I, I want to go back to something that you said before. So we sort of talked about what the problem with, you know, just having a good outcome and going to a bar and patting yourself on the back is, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a mirror image problem, which is 
when you know that the outcome is bad and you're trying to go in and deconstruct that decision, uh, guess what? That, that process is going to be, uh, you know, biased as well because you're going to be looking for all of the things in the decision that caused the outcome to be poor when perhaps the decision process was actually quite good. But because you know the outcome, because you know that the outcome was bad, you're going to retrofit it. You're going to, you're going to make it make sense. Um, and so it's actually a two sided problem. So what you did is counterintuitively the actual solution to this problem, which is you said, I want to analyze this decision in absence of knowing what the outcome is as much as possible, because that's really the only way for me to understand whether the decision process was good or bad. The shocking part for me, even though I was, if you would, running this experiment was I knew when I saw the outcome that the probability of that I would have thought about it the way I had just finished thinking about it mm -hmm. was close to zero. Um, I, it was just one of those self-honesty moments. You know, would I would would I have made these conclusions? Would I have thought this all through? And the answer was no, maybe maybe a tiny bit of it. So you've really set up uh, the next question quite well when you're talking about asymmetry and whether or not we really are able to see everything. And you and you you state it. In a, in a broad way that poker mimics life, but chess not so much. So so walk walk us through that. It, it's uh, we were almost there with what you were saying, but you can finish it off. Yeah yeah. So so let me let me get, let me actually sort of start with the example that opens my book because I think that this this is a very powerful example that shows us what a long shadow the adult casts over our ability to think in any kind of clear eyed way about the decision. So just very quickly, people remember the 2015 Super Bowl. The Seahawks are on the Patriots one yard line with 26 seconds left in the whole game. They're down by four at second down. Um, and uh, you know, your listeners will recall that uh, quite famously, um, Pete Carroll calls a pass play. Russell Wilson passes the ball. It's intercepted by Malcolm Butler in the end zone. Let's agree that that's a, a disastrous result. Um, and Chris Collingsworth, it, you know, calling it in game, you know, says this is unbelievable. I can't believe he made this decision. Uh, and the next day, you know, the headlines are in agreement with Chris Collingsworth. And in fact, most people are saying that this is the worst decision in Super Bowl history. Uh, USA Today actually went so far as to say it was the worst decision in, in NFL history. So this was the reaction, certainly to a very bad outcome. And, and I asked people to do the thought experiment of, well, let's imagine that Pete Carroll calls that pass play, that same pass play, and the ball is caught for a touchdown, the game-winning touchdown in the end zone. Um, what do you think Chris Collingsworth would have had to say? Yeah. Then it's a gutsy call. <laughs> right. Well, we know because in the Super Bowl this year when the Eagles did the Philly special, which was a, a similar type of decision process, Everybody was saying, you know, this is why they're so great and, you know, they're so out of the box and they out Belichick Belichick and, you know, all the things that you know that they would say. And, and what's really interesting is, and I hope that people can feel this in their gut, is that when they think about that as an interception, that, that decision really does feel like it was really bad. And when, they, when you think about it as a game-winning touchdown, that decision feels brilliant. This is, you know, and, and I think that we can get there pretty quickly with the thought experiment. Now, you, you brought up, okay, so, you know, why is this happening? Where is this coming from? And it, it's really coming from the, this difference between poker and chess. 
So let's think about this in chess. If, if we play a game, and all that anybody knows is that I lost the game. Can people say something with pretty high reliability about who played the better game? Sure. If I lose to you, I think that they can pretty safely say that based on that result that I, I made worse decisions than you during the game. So in chess, what we think of as resulting is actually a reasonable heuristic. It's a reasonable shortcut to get through to decision quality. So, so what's going on in chess that's different than what's going on in the Super Bowl or what's going on in sales or what's going on when you're, uh, you know, consulting with, with a group on leadership or, you know, or when we're driving through traffic lights. What, what's the difference? The difference is, is that in chess, these two sources of uncertainty that uh, we mentioned, this, the hidden information and the luck element are really just greatly reduced. They're, they're nearly non-existent. So in chess, you can see every single piece on the board. So I know what your whole position is. So as I'm looking at the game, I, I know what your possible moves are at all times because your, your pieces are just there for me to see. Uh, so there isn't in any information asymmetry there. You can see my pieces, I can see your pieces. And there isn't the same kind of prominence of the element of luck, certainly not in the sense that someone might roll a pair of dice, you know, they come up nine and your bishop goes off the board just randomly. Um, so because of that, because that the uncertainty is so greatly reduced, um, what it means is that we can make these very tight connections between the quality of the outcome and the quality of the decision. Now they are actually quite tethered together. Um, and, and we can, we can, we can link them and we can work backwards. We can work forward and we can work backwards. We know that if I make better decisions than you during the game, prospectively, we can say that I'm going to win. Uh, and we know that if we look at player ratings, right? If my rating's just a little bit better than yours, then I'm supposed to win almost 100% of the time. So we can do it prospectively. And, and because of that very tight link, we can also do it retrospectively. If we just know the outcome, we kind of know the quality of the decision. But poker is not like that at all. In poker, there are cards that are face down. So I, I can't see... I know what my cards are, but I don't know what your cards are. Um, and obviously, there's this huge element of luck. I, I can have the very best hand, a hand like uh, aces, which is the very best hand. Uh, and you can have a terrible hand, like a seven and a two. Um, I can play my hand mathematically perfectly uh, with the best cards. And I can still lose because there are things that are just completely out of my control that are totally under the influence of luck, which is the turn of the, the cards that come. Which is also what ESPN wants to highlight. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. They want to know, oh, look at that river card. They're, they're actually highlighting quite a few lucky moments. This is true. So um, so let's think about what's the better, better model for understanding life's decisions. You know, is it chess or is it poker? Uh, and obviously the argument would be that it's poker because poker has these elements of um, uh, hidden information and obviously a pretty strong presence of luck, which is, well, that's just much more like life's decisions. And if you don't believe me, you can go look at the, uh, you know, book on decision-making under conditions of uncertainty, which is, um, theory of games by, uh, John von Neumann and Oscar Morgenstern. It was the, it really was, uh, the first book to introduce uh, game theory into economics. And that's the study of, human decision-making, basically. Um, it's where that started. And, you know, 
so here's an interesting thing about that that people aren't necessarily aware of is that uh, von Neumann actually, as he started thinking about game theory, based it on a stripped down version of poker. Um, and he was he was actually asked, why didn't you base it on chess? Um, How interesting. Yeah. And and his answer was because chess isn't a game, not in the sense of uh, game theory, right? Not in the academic sense of what is a game. Um, he said chess is just a calculation. Uh, and, and what he meant by that, and that's a butchered quote, I just want to say, don't don't go try to find that exact quote, because that's not exactly what he said. But um, what, what he meant by that was that because there is because you can see all of the pieces uh, and because there isn't this strong element of luck, you can just calculate out what the best move is at any given moment. Sure. Um, and you, you actually could solve that game. It explains why when IBM invents something like Big Blue, which is obviously a, a major computational machine. Then that's something that can then start winning games. You know, it can start beating grandmasters because now it's 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 largely a computational exercise, if you will. Right. So he he considered chess to be uh, a computing power problem. That if you have the computing power to do the the uh, comp, uh, computations that were that complex, that you should be able to solve that game. Um, and we know that that we're very close to that. And if you take something like tic-tac-toe, which is a, a very simple version of that same kind of game uh, where you don't have the hidden information or the element of luck, um, any you know competent 10-year-old has solved that. So if we jump ahead, Annie, and look at the term motivated reasoning mm -hmm. as an explanation for how difficult it can be for us to dislodge an established belief, which we've already kind of cemented that we tend to do, and I certainly am guilty of that. You recommend a way of offering, say, confidence or certainty gradients or percentages rather than black and white. Can you give give us an example how we might do that? Yeah. So, um, so motivated reasoning uh, is a a pattern of reasoning about the world where it's motivated toward an end point. So, generally, the end point would be confirming a belief that you have or uh, justifying a prediction that you might um, make. So essentially what happens is that we have, uh, we have some sort of belief uh, that then drives the way that we process new information that comes in, both in the sense that we notice uh, uh, lots of information that confirms us and we maybe don't notice information that disagrees with the belief that we have. And when we're confronted with information that agrees with us, we don't work very hard to vet it to really pick it apart and try to figure out everything that's wrong with it. Um, and, but when we're uh, confronted with information that disagrees with the belief that we have, um, we actually work very, very hard to vet it uh, and try to figure out all the ways that it's wrong. And, and look, I, I feel this for myself. If I read an article that agrees with me politically, I think, oh, great article. And if I read an article that disagrees with me politically, I will tell you everything that's wrong with the way they interpreted whatever data they were talking about or why they're incredibly biased in the way that they're thinking about the problem uh, and how the person who's uh, communicating it is incredible anyway. And here are all these other statistics that disprove what they're saying. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, you know, I mean, I think that we all feel that we do this and that that would be in the motivated reasoning category. Right. So we're not trying very hard to do much besides just sort of like score a point when something agrees with us. And we're working very hard to make sure that things that disagree with us don't have to be included in the process. Um, so you can imagine why this is, this is not your best way toward good decision making, because what happens is that 
uh, you have a belief and now the belief drives the way that you process new information as opposed to new information informing the belief so that you can calibrate your belief to uh, best represent the objective truth. Um, and it generally causes us to entrench in the beliefs that we have. And, you know, you get into these, I mean, obviously a very popular concept right now is echo chambers. Um, so you, you get into this, it's an, a very echo chamber way of thinking uh, where you tend to entrench and become more extreme in the things that you believe as opposed to um, calibrating uh, the beliefs that you have. So let's think about where this might be coming from and how we can actually solve this. So once we have a belief, that belief really, particularly if it has any kind of emotional valence whatsoever, uh, will become part of our identity. And we're always really trying to confirm our identity. And if, if you look at, for example, Daniel Kahneman's work uh, and uh, Kahneman and Tversky's work, what we're, really, what we're really doing in our lives is trying to create a positive narrative of our life story. We want to think well of ourselves and we, we want to affirm our identity and our beliefs tend to get become part of the fabric of our identity. We think about our beliefs as true or false. So if we have a belief, some sort of belief, uh, and we're thinking about that as something that's stored as say true, um, then if new information comes in that maybe should make us rethink that belief somewhat, and we've got it as just two categories, right or wrong. Now, when new information comes up, we don't, we don't, if we think we were right, we don't have anywhere to go, but all the way to wrong. So we have no way except, you know, absolute reversal to, because we're only thinking about it as one or the other. And if we reverse and we go to wrong, what does that say about our identity? Right? This is an, an attack on our identity. Um, it does not feel good to be wrong that would be definitely a negative update in our life's narrative. So what ends up happening is that we close ourselves off to really valuable information. Uh, in particular, we aren't open-minded to information that disagrees with us because it's gonna have to cause this full-on reversal. So if we, if we kind of understand that this is where uh, this problem seems to be driving from, where, it's, where the base of this problem is, then we can go back to, like, let's go all the way back to talking about uncertainty and the uncertain relationship between, um, you know, outcomes and decisions. Well, we also should have a lot of uncertainty around our beliefs for the same reasons that there's lots and lots of information that is unavailable to us, that we have not yet discovered, that we haven't heard yet, we haven't read yet, we haven't explored yet that may actually be very informative for a belief that we have. And any belief that we have, we certainly don't have 100% of the available information uh, in order to have any kind of categorical knowledge about that belief. That, that any belief that we have, we would want to sort of think of, uh, really wrap the uncertainty into to the belief. And I think that we can feel this if we if we kind of get out of, this identity protect, protective cognition space. Because if I ask you to think about, well, can you think of a belief that you had that you held very, very strongly, that you really, really, really thought of as categorically true or categorically false when you were 20? Uh, can you think of one 
maybe it turns out you might not have wanted to be so sure about back then. It's a good example. I like that thought process. I right. was I was thinking about uh, curiosity as as a way to overcome self serving bias. When when my my friend uh, who was a SEAL, Jeff Boss, he he wrote a book, Navigating Chaos. He elegantly introduced curiosity as a way to overcome that. Where does the where does the self serving bias come from? You know how do how do we stay curious or not so surefire about these things, Annie? Yeah, so I think that curiosity is exactly the right thing. So what 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 drives curiosity? You know, I say open-mindedness, uh, but open-mindedness is curiosity. Um, you know, what drives that? It's, well, once you sort of realize, well, if my 20-year-old self had a whole bunch of beliefs that I was certain of, you know, that, that 20-year-old version of me was so certain of these beliefs, um, and now I kind of realize, Ooh, maybe I shouldn't have been so certain about those, then let's agree that it's very likely that present me, present Annie, also has beliefs that feel very, very certain to me that perhaps uh, I shouldn't be so certain about as well. And so once you kind of get into that headspace where you say, well, let me think about my beliefs not as categorically right or wrong, as things that I'm certain about, either certain they're right or certain they're wrong. And instead, I really try to examine sort of what my level of certainty is. Or even better, I can think about what is my level of uncertainty about them how how sure or not sure am I of the belief and there's there's different ways that I can get at that I can uh, try to think about on a scale of zero to ten how sure am I of this thing that I believe um, I could think about it percentage wise that I'm like 60% sure 60% of the time I, I believe that this belief will turn out to to be true or false um, I could think about it in terms of a range. So the way that you would think about a range would be like if you ask me what year Elvis died, how old he was when he died. Um, I don't. I might not know the exact number, but I could give you a range. Like I think it's between forty and forty-seven. So I'm expressing there. I'm expressing uncertainty in that way. Um, you can also so you could think about you know well I'm six on a scale of ten or I'm sixty percent or my range is forty to forty-seven or you could get at it in less precise ways which would be like, I, well, I read this particular uh, article. It was very interesting, but it's the only article that I read on the topic. Now, the minute that I say that, I'm injecting uncertainty in my belief because I'm acknowledging, I'm, I'm thinking about the incompleteness of my information, which automatically pulls me off the edge. And once we start to wrap uncertainty in our beliefs, what ends up happening? Well, by nature, if we're trying to we're, we're always trying to refine and calibrate our beliefs and we recognize that the belief is uncertain, what happens to us? We become information hungry. Because it's the person who's certain who doesn't need to know anything more. There, there's Why should they? They're already certain of, of what they believe. They don't need to go out and explore the world anymore because they, they already have the belief lodged. But once you start to really recognize the uncertainty in the things that you believe, you, you start to think about yourself more you know, in light of the 20-year-old you who had all of those beliefs. Now you naturally become curious. You naturally want to go out and, and seek out information and opinions that, that might help you to refine uh, the belief that you have. And, and what's really beautiful about it is that in particular, the opinions that you really want to go seek out is information that disagrees with you, information that might show you why you're wrong. And, and why is that? Well, because you already know why you believe what you believe. You already know why you think you might be right. 
Um, so that's actually not particularly helpful in trying to get out of this state of uncertainty that you're in. What's very helpful for trying to reduce the uncertainty is actually uh, saying, well, okay, let me go look at all the stuff that might tell me why I'm wrong. Right. And you have a, ca you have a great capture term for it in the book, which I just want to, I want to introduce to the audience. And by the way, if you, if you haven't figured out that this is a, a very deep, well thought out and researched book, I think you're, you're getting a good taste of that now, dear audience. You used, <laughs> the, you used the term truth seeking, you know, when you told your story about how you form decision pause, you know, as a way, as an antidote. I think the the big part of that was that curiosity or dare I say humility that we don't know everything that led you to that truth seeking path, which is pretty cool. Can I just offer I just want to offer up a frame for thinking about that that uh, truth seeking. I would like people to think about what the difference between uh, right and accurate is. So what's the difference between reasoning to be right? versus reasoning to be accurate, because I think this is a really good shorthand, because you can use this with other people, right? You can say, are you trying to be right, or are you trying to be accurate? It's a, it's a really good way to think about the problem. That's if a great question. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? So if you're reasoning to be right, what that means is you're reasoning to, inf uh, basically, you're reasoning to uh, affirm the things that you already believe, or support the things that you might predict. So that that's what you, you can think about that as the purpose is to be right. In other words, is that I have these beliefs and I want them to be true. So that that's how I'm now going to reason about the world. And when I'm actually trying to tell you a story about why I'm right, my purpose is actually to get you to agree with me. Okay, so that, that would be reasoning to be right. Reasoning to be accurate is saying my goal is to construct the most accurate model of the world. So in order to do that, uh, sometimes I'm going to find out that I need to back off things that I believe or back off predictions that I might have. So when I'm reasoning to be accurate, what I'm actually really interested in is uh, an exchange with you, which is not meant for you just to ultimately agree with me. Uh, it's meant for us together to uh, try to come up with the most accurate model of, of the world. And so that may actually involve me realizing that the things that you believe maybe I should be agreeing with a little bit more, you know, generally the truth is going to lie somewhere in the middle. And so where the, the title of the book comes from thinking in bats is actually from this difference between right and accurate. Um, so one of the ways that we can actually bubble the uncertainty to the fore, and this is, you know, if you think about game theory being based on poker, it's not actually accidental that this would be a way to get the uncertainty to appear is to think about what if you had to bet on the belief. So, you know, as you're about to post that absolute certain statement on Twitter, what if before you did that, you said, what if somebody challenged me to a bet? Want to bet. Said, do you, wanna yeah, bet. Do you want to bet. Do you want right, to bet whether this is true or not? Um, what does that frame do? Because now you're thinking, oh, look, would I be willing to put money on it? I I think of the example I give in the book is like if you said Citizen Kane won Best Picture, sure feels like it should have. Um, if you said to me, do you want to bet? What does that do to me? Now, all of a sudden, this thing that I just announced with absolute certainty, I'm like, oh, hold on a second. Let me think. And, you know, why do I know that? What's the information that I have? How certain am I of the information? You know, because I'm not I'm not a film historian. Uh, <laughs> what is what do you know that I might not know? Why might I be wrong? Um Basically, it forces me to start not thinking about whether I'm right, but whether that statement is accurate. 
So that's pretty cool. It's a really beautiful way. It's a really beautiful way to kind of get to this difference. And the reason why it does that so beautifully is that if we are betting against each other, the one of us that's more, much more likely to win is the, the one of us that's more open-minded and more curious and more interested in uh, seeking out all forms and variety of opinions because the person who wins is the one who's reasoning in their lives to be accurate as opposed to the person who's reasoning to be right. The more accurate you are, the more the better off you are if you're betting. That's that's a, a wonderful analog, and you described it so well. There's there's so many ways we can we can take that. I had in the back of my mind, uh, you know, a, a, a recent let's say um, family disagreement where clearly mm. clearly there was not a lot of interest in accuracy going on. Um, let's um, let's just do a bit more here, Annie. Um, I want I want you to describe backcasting and premortem. To me, those are great terms and an excellent process for strategic planning. In fact, I intend to use them. Can you tell our audience? Oh, good. Can you tell our audience what those are? Yeah. So, uh, I think that there's a lot that's been written about forecasting. Uh, so let's think about uh, forecasting as uh, standing in the present. And looking out over the future to try to figure out, you know, looking ahead to try to predict what the future might hold. Now, when we forecast, uh, I don't, do you remember that um, New Yorker cartoon, which was uh, like, I think they're standing on, I think 10th Avenue, maybe. And um, they're looking, uh, I think they're looking west. And it's like, you know, 10th Avenue up to the Hudson River takes up, you know, half of the cartoon. And then there's like the kind of the rest of America and, you know, like Russia and Japan are little dots off in the distance. Yep. So I, I, what, I, I remember that as a, as a proud, insulted Westerner. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. But it's actually bringing up uh, something that happens with forecasting, which is that at, from wherever we're standing, as, as we look ahead, the things that are immediately in front of us loom very, very large. And we aren't as good as, at imagining what might be happening a little bit farther into the distance. And so uh, forecasting can be quite good for uh, predicting the immediate future, but it's also going to cause the immediate future to take up more cognitive space. Um, so, like, for example, if you're, if you're thinking about a three-year strategic plan, um, you know, the next six months is going to take up a lot more of your strategic planning than you know, the whole three years, you yeah, know, pro I mean, probably 90%. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So the question is, how do we kind of get past that? Because if, if, if we're really just planning for the immediate future, that's great for the immediate future, but it's not so good for the long-term strategic plan. How do we manage to see, you know, Japan, uh, way off in the distance, maybe, uh, looming a little bit larger so that we can include that a little bit better into the plan. Um, and we want to do that because otherwise what we're really doing is just reacting to the to conditions as they are right now. Um, and we're less likely to see, uh, to foresee where conditions might really drastically change, where there might be a paradigm shift, for example, we're, we're just less likely to spot that. And uh, if we're not planning, you know, if 90% of our time is spent on the next six months, then what's going to happen is that things that might happen in that, that last two and a half years, um, we might end up being much more reactive to because we haven't foreseen those as well. So we can't really put action plans around those kinds of events occurring. So how do we get out of that? 
And this brings us to backcasting and forecasting. So uh, let's start with backcasting. Well, so we have forecasting. We know what that is. So you can probably imagine what backcasting is. It's the reverse. It's standing at the end and looking back. So let's say that we have some sort of uh, like a three-year strategic plan. Um, instead of thinking, well, how do we get there? Like how do we go from here to there? Think how, do, how did we get from there to here? So, so what does that mean? Well, let's say that we have some uh, sales growth that we, we'd like to meet, right? So uh, you know, let's say that we have a three-year strategic plan where we want to grow our market share by 20%. And that's our three-year strategic plan. A backcast would be we stand in front of the room and we say, here's, here's the newspaper, here's the headline. We reached our goal and we grew our market share by 20%. And now you ask people, why did that happen? Now, what that means is notice you've sort of reversed the direction is now they're thinking about the end point. And they're standing and they're looking back on that toward the future. So they think about, oh, we, we, we reached our goal. Why did that happen? Well, they're going to start thinking about what would have happened right before that we reached that goal. So now you're, you're actually looking at three years out as opposed to right in front of you. So that, that's a backup. And so it's just a nice addition that kind of allows you to see sort of the stretch of time a little bit better. And, and one of the things that it, it will allow you to see is sort of what are the things that need to happen in order for us to really fully get there, for, for us to get to our goal. And you can start to create uh, plans around making sure that you increase the probability of those things happening um, and you get people to really uh, be committing to certain actions um, uh, that will get you there. And then also you can sort of think about, okay, along the way, if we're not reaching uh, particular um, benchmarks, that we might have to reevaluate because those benchmarks must occur in, a, or in order for us to have gotten here. So that would be a backcast. So that's kind of, um, you know, that feels pretty good, right? A backcast because you're, well, you're thinking about winning. <laughs> and we like to think about winning because we reached our goal. It puts the reality right in front of you, whether or not you're, right. you're predicting, you're expecting a miracle occur or if you're going to actually have some real milestones that you can start assessing the probability of. It's, it's really wonderful. And I dare say most of the projects that I've seen managed uh, in my career have often had um, some miracles occurring often after the people launching the program have ha handed it off to somebody else. Gee, what a surprise. Right, right. What a surprise. <laughs> so, um, so then... But, but what we want to do, so that's great because that's sort of like we reached our goal. Let's figure out why we're so great and why, you know, what, what happened that we were so fantastic and so successful. Um, and people actually really enjoy backcasting because you get to live in kind of a happy place. Um, but again, thinking about this idea of um, the difference between being right and accurate or how do we approach the world asking why we're wrong, uh, what we really want to do is live in well, what, what happens if we don't reach our goal? And, and that's called a pre-mortem. So instead of um, doing a post-mortem and examining something after the fact when things haven't gone well and your patient is dead, the idea would be to uh, imagine it's three years from now and I'm holding up a headline that says we failed to increase our market share by 20%. You know, And you can think about different ways that you can express that. Like we're holding it up and it could be we lost market share or uh, our market share stayed flat, or you know, just think about what the bad outcomes are. 
imagine that those have happened and now have everybody write down why that happened. This, uh, this is an exercise that Gary Klein has, has suggested. So, um, so have everybody write down, you know, all right, everybody write down five reasons, the five reasons that we didn't, that we didn't reach our goal. And what ends up happening is that it's very, it's a very, I think it's a very freeing exercise for people on the team because most of the time people don't want to talk about failure. They don't want to say, Hey, I really kind of don't think that I'm, that we're going to reach this goal. I think this goal is kind of crazy. Um, and all these things could go wrong. Um, you know, that's not a, a voice that's very often welcomed into a room. Very often people will say it's welcomed, you know, but then when somebody actually opens their mouth and does that, they, you know, it's sort of, they're a naysayer or they're a pessimist or they're not a team player or there's just natural human tendencies for not offering up those kind of contrarian views in a room. Um, you know, because someone sta standing at the front of the room is the leader and you don't sort of want to critique the leader and the team. We tend to, to reason as a tribe. Exactly. Um, and part of reasoning, right. So th this now changes the rules of the game. What's the goal of this game? Well, the goal of this game is to come up with all the reasons why things didn't work out. Um, and so now what you've done is you've created a situation where being a good team player, being a good part of the tribe, is actually expressing those more pessimistic views, expressing those more kind of naysaying views. And, and you'll get some very interesting things out of that kind of exercise. So for example, uh, very often when we have a project, there's a, there's a key person that's um, involved in the project. Um, and when we're doing a backcast, uh, what generally doesn't come up is something like, well, what if this key person quits their job and leaves? Um, because someone's going to say, yo, like, why, why would you say that? Like, that's so rude. Are you saying I'm going to quit? <laughs> <laughs> like, why would you? But notice in a premortem, that kind of thought, that kind of idea becomes completely fair game. It becomes part of it, it becomes part of the exercise. Sure. It's, saying, a, it's you know, in the well, universe of possibilities. Exactly. What if Nancy quits? You know, Nancy's the key person for this project. What if she quits? So you get you'll get some sort of very out of the box thinking. You know, people will be more likely to imagine paradigm shifts or decline in customer demand or uh, you know, whatever it might be they're starting to think about that a little more. So there, there's all sorts of benefits that come out of this exercise. The, the first is that you might find that as you were thinking about the probability of success on the backcasting side, that maybe you should lower that probability to something a little bit more realistic because, ooh, you just did this premortem and there's actually a lot of routes to failure that you hadn't really thought about. Um, so maybe you, would, you adjust the goal to something more realistic or uh, you, you sort of rethink. That's kind of the number one thing that will come out of it. Number two is... You, you start to see these these uh, stress points where things might not go your well way. So, for example, in in the case which which I just said, where um, you think about a key person uh, leaving the project, well, now what you can do is say, okay, well, we have to admit that that might happen. What are we going to do now to make sure that if they leave, that this can get handed off smoothly to a new person, that the whole thing doesn't fall apart because one person left. Right. So you can think about this, for example, if, if uh, you have a sales relationship um, and you have one person that you have the relationship with at the, the company that you're working with. Obviously, if that person leaves, uh, that can often create an, a disaster where the relationship falls apart. Well, if you've done a premortem where you've actually thought about that, maybe you can figure out how to create relationships um, outside of that that one person that's your that's your contact. So that when they leave, you actually can, can sort of get handed off to somebody in a 
in a much more smooth fashion where you don't have to recreate the relationship. So it, it allows you to actually put plans in place so that when those things happen, those points of stress that really might cause things to go um, sideways, that you, you're instead of just reacting to them and going, oh, no, what do we do? Nancy quit. Um, you actually have plans in place in advance so that you are proactive rather than reactive and that you can also just as you do on the, the back cast side where you think, OK, here are these things that need to happen in order for this project to succeed. Uh, we've sort of figured that out. What can we do in order to really boost the probability of those those things happening? You can look at here are these uh, ways in which uh, things might go poorly. Here are these events that are likely to occur um, under conditions where we're not going to reach the goal. So how can we actually work to reduce the probability of those things happening? Um, so it's interesting because I think that we don't like to live in the negative. But if we do the work in advance, where we where where we kind of live in the downside, we're actually much more likely to end up having things work out well. Number one, we're much less likely to be reactive as an organization. And I think here's the really important part: is that um, we're we're much sort of two two fold is that we're much less likely to end up with the, those really valuable voices that are contrarian thinkers feeling like they're not welcome and not represented um, in the decision process or just kind of shooed away or silenced in some way because there's so much space for their voices to be heard in, in the plan. And then when something doesn't go wrong, uh, doesn't go right rather, we're much less likely to fall prey to resulting, whether actually whether it goes right or goes wrong. And you're much less likely to get that kind of I told you so or, or you should have known or to have something that, you know, had a 1% chance of happening. Because um, it's, like it's, it's, it's already out there. Right. It feel like it was inevitable. So, you know, you, you have some really good strategic plan and you see that 20% of the time, you know, you're not going to reach your goal. Um, and you decide, well, but this is still a worthwhile goal to pursue. So now when you don't reach your goal, you're not running around going, how could we not have known? And going in and, and really drastically changing your decision process because you had a bad outcome, because you can actually look at the plan and you can say, well, here's th that 20% that is sitting right here. We already knew that that was part of the uh, possible set of outcomes that could occur. It's a game changer for strategic planning. And I intend to uh, explore this quite a bit myself. It, it's 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 really nice. I found I found in corporate America this uh, strategic planning. It, it, you were outlining it almost perfectly at the beginning when you were talking about the the three year plan. Almost everything was six months out, and then it was a very quick asymptote to to, to almost right. nothing. So right, three three year strategic plans are actually like you know six month strategic plans. Exactly. So here's here's our final question, Annie. You know, what led you to, to playing poker, you left your you know, familiar world to you academics and, and allowed you to get understand people and decision making from a whole new perspective, poker. What advice do you have for younger generations, say someone just going into college now, about gaining an outside the box perspective like you did? Huh. Well, I, I, I really think that, that my biggest piece of advice is just to embrace the uncertainty. Uh, when when I Think about why people say stay stuck in a job that they don't like or in a career they don't like. Or, I mean, even at the beginning of your life, you go into college and you choose your major and you're very reluctant to change your major. You know, you come out with a particular skill set and you think this is the job that I'm supposed to continue down, you know, and, and this is just what I've always done. So therefore I should do it. I think a lot of it comes from fear of uncertainty that we're so afraid of making a decision 
where the outcome is unknown because because the outcome is unknown because we feel like we don't we don't have control over the way it's going to turn out and that very often we will we will choose to stay in something where we have a lot of familiarity with it and we kind of know how it's going to turn out. But what we really know, what the certainty is around is that we're actually kind of more certain that we're going to continue to be dissatisfied it's a great in answer. whatever it is that we're so, so I think it's really interesting that we're so afraid of uncertainty that we'd rather stick in, stick with something which is like meh, you know, where, <laughs> where we're sort of, yeah, I'm not so happy or maybe I'm, I'm quite unhappy, but at least it's a known entity. I, at least I know what it is. Um, rather than make a decision to change. And so what I, what I would say uh, to people who are kind of stuck there um, is a few things. One is that sticking with whatever you're doing is a decision. It, it doesn't feel so much like it is because you're sort of staying the course, but at, at any moment, you know, you have to think about, I have different paths that I could take. And one of those paths is deciding to stay on the path that I am. But whenever I choose that, I'm foregoing all other possible things that I could be choosing to do because I can only invest my time, my life in one, one path at a time. And so if I, if I go down this path and foregoing all the other paths, sometimes it will work out and sometimes it won't. But I know that the thing that I'm doing right now isn't so happy. Um, and it's probably unlikely to get substantive, substantially better because it, it's a little bit more of a known entity. I think that it, it feels better to say, well, you know, if you change course and things don't work out, I, I, I think that it it feels a lot worse to you. It feels like you're more responsible for that because we aren't viewing the, the sort of staying the courses as a decision. So that, I think that's number one. Number two is realize that most decisions you make, uh, you know, so I think that once if you make a change, for example, if you decide to change careers, uh, it feels like you're making some sort of change where you can't go back to the career that you already had. But of course you can. Um, so I think that's number two is to realize that mo most decisions that we make are reversible. And so it's OK if it doesn't work out because maybe there's a chance to go for it. That's okay. Um, so I think really thinking about the reversibility, I think is really important. And then the other thing is realize that while the, the course that you're on feels very certain, it's actually not because there's lots of different ways that your life can go. I mean, you're, you're sitting in whatever job that you have and you feel like it's, it's, you know, quite certain. Uh, but you know what? The company might go under or you might be let go or, uh, somebody new might come in to manage your team who you really, really don't get along with that makes that job unbearable, for example. There might be some kind of paradigm shift where that particular industry actually just kind of goes away. Um, don't really think about because we don't pre-mortem our own lives very well. Um, and so it sort of feels like the way things are now that it will always be that way. Um, and so you feel like there's certainty around the future when you when you stay the course, except that you have to realize that that's, that's pretty uncertain too. So, you know, I think on the uncertainty, because once you wrap the arms around the uncertainty, I think you're much more likely to recognize opportunities and take advantage of opportunities that cross your path because they don't feel so scary. I think that you're much less likely to get um, sort of sent off kilter by bad outcome because you realize that those are part of the set and you're much less likely to be subject to self-recrimination when those bad outcomes occur because the future is uncertain and you kind of realize they're part of the set. I think that you become much more decisive because you realize, once you realize that you can't ever guarantee a good outcome, I think you're much more likely to do what's called satisficing, um, which is saying, you know, I've got enough information to make the decision. And uh, if I get more information and more advice from other people, it's probably not going to substantively change 
um, the decision. So I'm willing to go for it because it's uncertain anyway. And the idea that I could ever get all the information or really guarantee that I'm going to have a good outcome is illusory anyway. So I'm just going to go ahead and decide. Um, so, you know, I think there's all these advantages to just being like, you know what? The, life's a little bit of a gamble. You know, yeah, there's, I was about to say that. Ways that things could turn out. And so it's all okay. Life indeed is like poker. <laughs> it really yeah. is. Well, Annie Duke, um, this was, this was a wonderful joint cast. And, um, I, I, I definitely feel that, uh, everything that was in your book and all the depth of that and the research is absolutely sincere. Annie Duke, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. Thank you so much for, for this joint cast. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you've enjoyed the joint cast, a positive review and kind word to your friends and colleagues would be most appreciated. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E, and visit www.choink.com to sign up for an upcoming Leadership Excellence course and to support one of our worthy causes, such as Autism Speaks Walk. 